So this morning, I'm going to begin with my so what. Some of you are here new, you wouldn't know the process, but normally I preach into the Scripture or out of the Scripture, and then I theologize with you. But I'm going to give you the so what because it's really important in telling us why this series on the church is important. Uh, This series was designed by Nathan and David that we would come to a biblical understanding of the church, be reignited about some of these things that we know, so that we would be the agent of change that God desires the church to be in this world. So I want to share some of my reading. So when I get to the end, don't worry, it'll be short once I stop, but I'm doing the so what now, so you know the urgency. Uh, Some of you know the Barna Group. It's a research group that does all types of surveys on different topics in our society. And uh, recently they published this one, What's New and What's Next at the Intersection of Faith and Culture. And one of the summary articles, it's, What's the Point of the Church? Question mark. You've gotten the message by now, but here's the recap. Millennials, mostly 20-somethings, are famously saying they no longer need church. There's a mass exodus that's happening. 59% of millennials who grew up in the church have dropped out. 52% have not been to church in the last six months, and one-third don't see church as important. Uh, This is an epidemic. The church is booming in the Southern Hemisphere. The church is booming in the East and Asia. Uh, The church in the West is slowly dying off. Um, I forget the number now, but I think it's as many as 4,000 churches close in Canada and the U.S. every year. Uh, Now, it might even be more than that. I I may have my numbers off on that. So there's a problem that needs to be addressed. That's why we need to know why the church exists. Perhaps just as telling are the insights of millennials who say that church is important to them. 20% in the survey. The majority, 54%, said the reason they go to church is to be closer to God. A close second, 31%, said it was to learn more about God. 16% said it was because the church is God's hands and feet in the world. And somewhat alarmingly, only 14% said they go to church to be part of a community. These two top answers ranked far above the others and both quite focused on the personal relationship with God reveal that there is something missing from an understanding of the purpose of the church. Now, just so you know that this is not millennial bashing, um, here's a parenthesis that comes right after this. These expectations are learned expectations from parents and older generations who answered in almost the same way. So I read from the book uh, Disappearing Church in the opening message, and his challenge to us is that we have tried to become relevant in the culture, tried to accommodate the culture so they would feel a bridge into us. And in the process, we've been reductionistic, and basically we've played into the hands of the consumer spirit of what people want. Uh, One of his chapters at the end is he says, quit uh, subjecting yourself to public opinion, and number two, just tell the truth. Interesting dynamics. Uh, There's so much more I'd want to read here. I'm going to go to a second book. This is a little headsy this morning, but it's really important because I want you to see how important this series is. Um, Desiring the Kingdom by James K.A. Smith. Um, A lot of you go and buy the books that I mentioned from the pulpit. Don't buy this one, okay? This was written three years ago. He's written one more recently, You Are What You Love, which is better. But in this book, he basically challenges us that the liturgies we're getting in this world are stronger than the ones we're getting at the church. 
So you're hearing liturgies from us all the time, but in your daily life, there are cultural liturgies that are be given to us. Uh, he calls one the liturgy of the mall, consuming tendance and worship at the mall. He says, we've entered into consumer capitalism. When we go into the mall, we're immediately marketed with images of a happy, fulfilled, and pleasurable life. And we're promised that if we will just get these things, we will get our 15 minutes of fame that we're desiring. Now, that alone is an interesting statement. If you see what kids are testing on in their desires in life today, the number one thing they want is to be famous. That wasn't even on the chart 50 years ago in the process. And we're all buying into this. Um, Again, this is not millennial bashing. I'm a boomer. Some of you are busters. Some of you are exes. We've played into this. As the stream has been collecting uh, water and it's been getting stronger, we're just floating down the river with it. Uh, He goes on to say this. Uh, He says, "Um, I'm broken, so the way I fix my brokenness is I shop. Makes me think we used to have the Cartesian dictum, I think, therefore I am. I shop, therefore I am. But he says, it would be bad enough if it were just in the culture, but we've brought it into the culture of the church. Just listen to this. Unfortunately, the Christian response to the liturgies of consumerism is often woefully inadequate, even a sort of parody of them all. Rather than properly countering the liturgy of consumption, the church ends up mimicking it, merely substituting Christian commodities. We become Jesus-fied versions of worldly products, which are acquired, accumulated, and disposed of to make room for the new and the novel. Now, this is all headsy stuff. This video probably gets it better than anything that I've seen. Previously on Church Hunters. This is your first church. This is Creekside First Baptist. Honestly, right up front, uh, didn't love the name. The Sunday morning experience was just a little too traditional. Hey guys, how we doing? Hey, good. Doing how are good, you? doing good. So I know you didn't love the traditional vibe of the last place, okay? okay. But I think this church is really gonna do it for you. Yeah. It takes relevance to a whole new level. Behind me, you will see molded clay, jar art, tapestry, canvas, mosaic wow. church. Mm, I love beautiful. it. Right? So you've heard of interdenominational, mm-hmm. right. and you've heard of non-denominational. Mm-hmm. Well, this church identifies as interdenominational. Wow, that's that's perfect for it. us. It really is. But here's the kicker: a lot of celebrities go here. Yeah. What? Jeff Foxworthy. Oh, we love him. Yep. We really do. Ben Higgins from ABC's The Bachelor. Perfect. Several Real Housewives. Ooh, and. Know. Usher even came here one time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, follow me. Come on. Let's do it. So refreshing. Honestly, that last church was just way too traditional. It was yeah. too much. It was like we left there feeling convicted. Like, uh, ugh, right? Right. We're just, we're looking for more of a Tony Robbins type story. Like inspiration, like a TED Talk with a Bible verse. Yes. Oh, I love this. Right? It's perfect here. We love it. It really is. We love it. Awesome. Cool. Well, you guys know a lot of contemporary pastors speak out of the Message Translation Bible, Mm -hmm. right? Or this pastor speaks out of a brand new translation. It's the Tumblr Bible. Shut up. We love Tumblr, though. This is great. A lot of emojis, a lot of abbreviations. Oh, I couldn't ask for one. And how many seats in here? Oh, it is 6,000 altogether. Babe, 6,000. I got to be in this worship band. Imagine me up on that jumbotron mid-guitar solo. Do you know how many Instagram likes you get? Oh, Oh, my God. We find it hard to find a church right now because I grew up Catholic. I grew up Baptist, so... So, like, we, we drink. Yeah, but in private. 
I mean, obviously you get it. Basically, in terms of like worship, I think we're looking for like a Jesus culture type feel. Oh, I right. love them. Hillsong, obviously. Oh, obviously, you do the cross? Hillsong is great. Like a Bethel minus the spontaneous yeah. stuff. Yeah. Just for me, I connect in worship more when the leader is attractive. Personally, I'm a Carrie Job guy. Oh, okay. Well, she's married. Um, so is Christian Stanfield. So one of my personal favorite things about this church is the service times. Okay. There's an 8.30, a 10, a 1 o'clock, a 5.30, and even a 7 o'clock service. Oh, there's nothing around like 2? Yeah, for us, for what we need, 2, 2.15 is best. Yes. Uh, how many songs do they do during worship? Usually five, five and a half, depending on where the spirit leads. Oh, wow, babe, is that, is that a, a lot? lot? Well, if that's too that much for you, they have a program here called the Worship Assist Program. Okay. So if you ever get tired during worship, an intern will come out and just hold your arms up. You just keep worshiping <laughs> the King of Glory. Just like that. Wow. I love it. You can still look super spiritual. And my arms get so tired from yoga. Same. I actually like this church. I think we can make it work. It was all right. I mean, it was it was good. But like, I emailed the pastor, and he didn't immediately respond. So uh, we're taking these vessels elsewhere. No, you should boo. <laughs> now, that was a parody, so it expresses it in a very strong reality. But listen, we all do this. We're all bent to preferences. And Paul addresses that in the early church. First week, we looked at a church that was devoted. Last week, we looked at a church that was saturated by the grace of the gospel. And this week, we're looking at a church that needs to be united for it to be the agent that God intends it to be to bring change in this world. So let's go to the passage, Paul writing to the church in Corinth. Just to give you a little bit of information, it's a city and what we refer to as the Corinthian uh, Isthmus. It was a trading center. They had a big bronze uh, industry. People were coming from different places to live there because it was a place to gain wealth. It's a wealthy church. Paul critiques them on their wealth in the second book that he, or second letter that he writes to him. And because of their wealth, it, we see that they had great opportunities in life, but they also had great opportunity for sin. Wealth is a blessing and a curse. Wealth makes your life more comfortable, but it makes sin much more accessible. And so the Corinthian church is a perfect church for us to read about because we'll see a lot of the things that are going on in our own culture where we exist. Paul begins with these words, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. Paul appeals to them. He begs them. Paul's unique. He's a missionary statesman with a pastor's heart. He has this unusual grip of missiology and ecclesiology. Missiology is the advancement of the church, and ecclesiology is the theology of the church. And he begs the church for this one reason. The church is God's agent to bring restoration to the world. It is the body of Christ. Christ is the head, but the body is, and he's appealing to the church. He calls them the brothers, Adelphoi. It would be better if he said, uh, than the translation, siblings. Like we used to use in the old English, uh, we would say men, and we were referring to humanity. Paul is speaking to brothers and sisters. He repeatedly refers to women leaders in the church. 
He talks about one woman who was one of the apostles. He talks about women who are prophets. And so Paul's not distinguishing that way. He's calling all of the church and he's saying, be one. And he's speaking this out of his own experience. We know from Acts 18 that Paul spent a year and a half with the church in Corinth. He was the founder of it. Usually Paul would come in, he would establish the church quickly, or I would say this better, the Holy Spirit would establish the church. Paul was his agent as a missionary, and then he would move on, leaving it with local leadership. But Paul stayed with the Corinthians for 18 months. It says something of the personal relationship that he had with them. And he appeals to them by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is significant. It's not an accusative uh, preposition. We would expect him to say, I appeal to you for the sake of Jesus Christ, but he appeals by. It's a genitive preposition, which means he's using instrumentality. He is calling on the authority that he has as one who is being used by God. He's calling the church to attention because there's a problem, a very serious problem. Paul lays it down pretty strong here. I appeal to you by the name of Christ. He's even going beyond for the sake of Christ. And then he states the problem. It's what I would call a positive-negative sandwich. He says it positively twice and once negatively. That all of you agree, that's the positive, that there be no divisions among you, that's the negative, but that you be united in the same mind in the same judgment. See, there had been division, and Paul spends the first three chapters of this letter to the Corinthians calling them to unity. He's basically saying, your effect, what God has put you in the earth to do, is being challenged because you're not united. The early church was remembered by the people who were outside the church of the way they loved one another and why they were, why, the way they were in unity. And Paul is calling this early Corinthian church back to that kind of unity. He says in verse 11, it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among my brothers. And so there's a trouble that's happening here. Not only is it division where people's backs are turned, but there's launching things back and forth. And then he speaks right to the problem. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. There's partisanship in the church. Some prefer the way Paul led, some prefer the way Apollos led, and some preferred staying with the teachings of Cephas. Cephas is the Jewish name of Peter. Now, there's a clue in that, that he would call him Cephas to Greek people. There's something happening here. Paul was the founder of the church. Apollos, we know, was one who came, who was a great oratory gift that raised the church up, and the believers who were Jewish would have been pushing back to Peter as their original apostle, as the one who they had come from. Besides those three, there were people who didn't like any of the stamps, and they would say, I follow Christ. So one person would say, well, I follow Paul, and Paul says this. And someone would say, I follow Apollos, and Apollos says this. I follow Cephas, and Cephas would say this. Oh, I follow Christ. I'm more spiritual than the rest of you. I don't even bother to follow a person. I've had spiritual experiences none of you have had, and I have scriptural understanding that's at a Gnostic level that you would never get to. This is what's happening in the church. Now, there's a clue that there were simply preferences behind all of these choices. It sounds theological at times when people make their pleas. I hear this all the time. People will encase their preferences in a theological language. Uh, Kenneth Bailey, who does uh, teaching on the New Testament, says this of um, Corinth. It was destroyed in 144 B.C., it was a Greek city at that time. The Romans completely plowed it because they were not submitting. 
A hundred years later, it was made into a Roman colony. At that moment, there would have been a pecking order in society. If you were a Roman, you were at the top. You had classism. If you were Greek, you then had importance. And if you were a foreigner, you were underneath that. And especially underneath that would be a Jewish foreigner. Okay, just follow this now. Some say, I follow Paul, Roman citizen. Some say, I follow Apollos, Greek teacher. Some say, I follow Cephas, Jewish law abider. This is not about theology. This is about social preference. This is ethnocentrism. This is racism. This is people saying, I have my camp that I'm a part of. And Paul takes it right on. He says this, uh, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Am I your savior? You hear this? This is interesting. Paul, I've never had a Messiah complex. Why are you trying to give me a Messiah complex? I wasn't crucified. Were you baptized into the name of Paul? He's saying, I'm not important. I'm the founder of this church. God used me. I was the one who planted, but Apollos, he's going to say later, is the one who watered. It was God who brought the increase. I love the way Paul is being humble here. He throws himself under the bus. He could have said, was I crucified, were you? Was Apollos baptized? He could have then pulled some of his apostolic authority in that moment, right? No, he's like, was I crucified? Was I the one you were baptized into? No, you were made one in Christ. And then Paul goes off on what we refer to as a cartacrucis in Scripture. I love the way the Holy Spirit hovers over the process but doesn't interfere with it. Cartacrucis is what we would call a rabbit trail. So Paul is writing away and he's thinking on deep theological uh, subjects and his mind's transported back to Corinth. You know how it's like when you tell a story. When I tell stories in Mali, I keep inserting French words or Bombada words because my mind is back there. Paul starts talking about the people he baptized and didn't baptize. I love how the Holy Spirit's just hovering over it and just allows it to happen. Now, if we went in there, we would go on a rabbit trail, so I'm going to jump over it. But the point is this. Paul comes back in verse 17, and he says this, For Christ did not send me to baptize. Now, he did baptize people, but he's saying, that's not my primary purpose, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the, gospel, the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. What makes you one is that there's one who was crucified on your behalf who brought you into this adopted family where you have the same standing and you are one, united in him. You are made into the cruciform body that becomes God's agent of change in this world. And you will not be that if you are divided and you are speaking against this person and that person and following different ways. Paul says, church, be united. That's the only way God's going to use you. All right, so I already gave you my so what. When I think of Paul, the only thing that really gets him upset is when he sees something blocking view of the cross and the advancement of the glory of Jesus. When something comes against him, it's neither here nor there. For him, it's all about Christ. He was underneath the cross completely in his life. For him, his life desire was to know Christ, uh, to know him in the um, power of his present risenness and the fellowship of sharing in his suffering. 
Everything else he considered garbage in his life opposed to knowing Christ. And his all purpose was for the advancement of the church to make Christ known. So I'm going to go right to the now what. First one is this. If there's any latent consumerism in you that you've picked up in the liturgies of the world, and I know there is because there's latent consumerism in me, I tell you in Jesus' name, by the name of Jesus, not just for the sake of Jesus, by the name of Jesus, leave it at the door. Leave it at the door. You don't go to church to be pleasured and get what you want. Folks, we have sold the next generation a bill of goods that's not going to stand up when our country continues to move away from the cross and from Christ because we've given them a relevant church. We don't need to be a relevant church. We need to be a biblical church. And when we're a biblical church, we'll be absolutely relevant because that is what the world is waiting for. They don't need another social club. They've got social clubs that are much better than ours and can pull it off better than us. They need us to be the church. And so we've got to leave our consumerism at the door. If this is not the church you worship at, when you go back to your church, leave your consumerism at the door. Do not go in asking, what do I get out of this? Go in saying, what am I giving in this so that I can be part of this agent that's changing the world? Now, i got to tell you how relieved I am I get to preach this now. There have been times in this church this would have been very hard to preach. But right now, we're in this zone of unity. We're in this zone of harmonious living. We're in this zone where God's moving us forward. We see it in the fruitfulness that's happening. It's kind of like my basketball coach in college. He used to rip us apart after we won. I couldn't figure it out. We'd win by 30 points, and we'd be sitting there shaking because he'd be yelling at us, we didn't do this right. But then we would lose, and he would be so compassionate with us. About my junior year, I asked him what that was about, and he says, oh, when you've won, that's when you're ready to hear the truth. When you're down and you're hurting, that's not the time to do the correction. So I'm going to come at you right now because we're whole and we're doing really well. This is a coach at a winning time saying to you, we better be vigilant because we are one moment of division to breaking apart what God wants to do through this church body. He's doing an amazing thing. How many churches over 280 years old are experiencing the vibrancy of life, the community impact, and the movement into the world that we are experiencing? But it's not because we're entertaining you. It's because we're giving you real church. So leave the consumerism out of it. The second thing I'll say is this, no partisan politics. I follow Chuck. Oh no, I follow Nathan. I follow Jackie. I follow David. Oh no, I'm better than all of you, I follow Christ. Now you laugh at that, but people try to do that all the time. We know it when it's happening. People will come to us and flatter us. They're trying to get us on the good side, and there's that twist in the conversation. But you know, Jackie, (laughs) or you know, Chuck, don't do it. See, you're not doing anything to us. What you're doing is you're destroying the body of Christ, the thing he died for. And you're breaking down the church's ability to move out into the world. 
bottom line is, it doesn't really matter what you say about me. I am just like Paul. I live for the glory of Christ. I don't care if my name ever gets on a plaque. I don't care if I'm remembered in anything. I don't ever want to be in a video or whatever the things are that people remember. When I walk away, I walk away. I don't even enjoy encouragement. I really don't. Words of affirmation are not in my love language to receive whatsoever. Everybody was nervous when they left the first service. They said, wanted to say, it was a good sermon, but I'm not allowed to say that because you don't like... <laughs> When you say that, you know what happens to me? I immediately go to the glory of Jesus because I know if there's anything good that comes out of this being, it's a vessel that's been broken and it's for the glory of God. So don't do partisan politics. So what's the real answer for us? It's not dreaming about this idealized unity that's out there somewhere. It's learned, it's exercised, it's grasped in the rawness of everyday relationship together. And so unity isn't something that I can aspire to apart from choosing to be humble myself and putting my own personal preferences down for the sake of a greater good. I read a perfect illustration of that this week. Brooker T. Washington lived over a hundred years ago. At that time, probably, no, I should say definitely, the most famous black American, probably known in Europe because of the influence he had. He was an advisor to presidents. He was the first black man to eat at the president's table. It just dawned on me this morning, the first time I said that, there were many black men who served the president's table before that. He was the first one to eat there as a welcome guest. Teddy Roosevelt said of him, he combined humility and dignity. When I read that, my shoulders want to go back. I think of the people who combined, combined humility and dignity. Humility is not milk toast. Humility can be very bold because it knows where it exists. And who's the one who really needs to get the praise? Teddy Roosevelt said this of Brooker T. Washington, As much as any man I've ever met, he lived up to Micah's admonition. What does the Lord require of thee? Then to do justice and love mercy and walk humbly with God. On May 12, 1911, he was the most honored man in Des Moines, Iowa. All the newspapers were talking about him. The buzz in the community was that he was in town. He spoke at three different churches, one of them congregational. He spoke at a gathering of all the African-American churches. And that evening, he arrived at his hotel, walked into the hotel, and a white woman mistook him for a servant and said, get me a glass of water. Without explaining who he was, needing to be justified, he went and got her a glass of water, and when he handed it to her, he said, ma'am, is there anything else I can do for you? You want to see the church come back to have the influence that it's supposed to have in our society? Don't dream about some unity out there. Ask God to make you humble. And watch and see what happens. Amen.